Hey there, friends. It's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're here with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we take your favorite animals and rate them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Except for this week, where we're not doing that. (laughs) That's what I would be saying if we... We're having a normal episode this week. There's a little, what's it called, subscript on that second one. Though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've had to uh, adjust our format just a little bit this week, but that's because we are doing something very exciting that uh, a lot of people have asked us to do something along these lines. We're taking a trip in the time machine. Mm-hmm. We're going back in time and reviewing two extinct animals animals which are no longer with us so we've had to tweak our format just a little bit uh to be a little bit more fair to (laughs) animals who are no longer (laughs) with us um so it's gonna be a little bit of an uh in memoriam for these for these creatures yeah really excited to talk about our extinct animals before we do i do have a little bit of housekeeping I want to talk to our listeners about the Max Fun Drive, which it currently is. This episode will be coming out during the first week of the Max Fun Drive. So folks who have been listening to us for a long time might remember last year's Max Fun Drive. Or if you listen to a lot of other shows on the Maximum Fun Network, you might already be familiar with about how this goes. But basically the gist of it is that all of the shows on our network are produced by artists who get to own their content. And that is because we are supported by the audience. So this is the time of year that we just spend a couple of weeks really putting a lot of effort (laughs) into offering y'all a lot of really cool bonus content, fun events, all sorts of stuff to really emphasize basically asking you for your support for this show. We don't like to make that uh, request too frequently, so we basically cram it all into uh, two weeks of intense messaging that also comes along with really cool and exciting new stuff. Some of it's silly and goofy. (laughs) Some of it is, yeah. Um, So later on in this episode, when we take our break between our segments, I'm going to talk more about some of the details of the Max Fund Drive and some of the benefits to people who are able to sign up for a new membership or upgrade their existing memberships during the drive. Um, I'm going to talk about things like our bonus content and the gifts that people can get, the actual material items that you can receive for this membership. Um, so stick around. In the middle of the episode, I'm going to talk about all that stuff. I'm really excited about it because I think it's I'm just really psyched. The content this year is so good. Um, especially, I, I mean, like, you know, everyone's is great, but especially ours. Yeah. Ours is really good. <laughs> so you can join over at MaximumFun.org slash join. We'll talk a little bit more about it later. For right now, let's do the show. Yeah. <laughs> and Christian, you go first this week. Yep. So we mentioned going back in time. This one is a good bit way back in time. I must admit, I don't know how far back. Well, I'll get to that and more. And more. (laughs) What a teaser. But this week, I'll be talking about the Megalodon. The Meg. (laughs) Scientific name, Otodus Megalodon. Meaning, ear-shaped tooth and giant tooth, respectively. Ear-shaped tooth, giant tooth. Yes. (laughs) Shortened to giant ear-shaped tooth. Oh, okay. (laughs) I suppose. I suppose, yeah, you could paraphrase it. Yes. Uh, I don't believe this was submitted by any 
listeners. Now, folks in general have been asking us to do episodes on extinct animals, yes, which is not completely unprecedented. Um, A while back, we had a guest episode where I spoke with Natalie Sabin about the dodo, Mm. which was really fun. But this is uh, our first time, you and me together, going on a time machine trip together. Yes. Uh, I'll be getting my information from... Australian Museum website, as well as Guinness World Records and Florida International Universities. Nice. So, Otodus Megalodon, not to be confused with Canopsis Megalodon. I didn't know there was more than one Megalodon. This is the San Felipe ground snake found in Mexico. Oh, what? (laughs) (laughs) You know what this feels like? This feels like in, like, Amazon items when they put (laughs) a bunch of, like, search keywords in the title to try to, like, get people to stumble across your content by accident. (laughs) Apparently, Big Tooth is a very popular descriptor of animals. That's true. Yeah, I guess Megalodon (laughs) did kind of hog that title. Yes. It just feels like when you can tell when bloggers, like, cram every possible hot topic keyword into their title... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is SEO for the for yeah. the what did you call it the San Felipe ground snake ground snake yeah yeah they were doing SEO for sure it's a nice snake though from what I saw oh I was excited because I thought oh Animal Diversity Web has something on this mm. but it wasn't it was about a snake <laughs> got catfish this isn't right <laughs> so that being said the megalodon we're talking about is a now extinct very large shark so the adult size was. Between 10 to 20 meters long, or 33 to 66 feet. Wow, that's huge. It is big, and that's about one to two city buses long. How many chickens is that? Uh, It was around 30, I think. (laughs) I didn't include it because it wasn't a nice number. Oh. (laughs) I wanted to say mega chickens, but it wasn't enough. (laughs) (laughs) Or about that's about three times the length of today's great white shark. Wow. The largest great white shark. And its jaws were three meters wide, or ten feet. I feel like I've seen museum displays mm-hmm. of megalodon jaws. Yes. This feels like a staple of, like, yes. marine a, biology exhibits. A recreation, of course. <laughs> yeah. But, yes, yeah, so that's a common aquarium and museum exhibit. I'm a sucker for it every time. <laughs> it's a very good picture opportunity. Oh, yeah, you get up in there? As you might notice, most people would fit inside <laughs> that size of jaws, <laughs> their entire body standing upright. True. That's a lot of teeth. Yes. Now, these measurements are mostly based on the fossilized teeth that have been found. And the, the working theory that it's outlined is similar to the Great Whites. So they're kind of doing a, they're assuming a similar ratio of tooth size to body length there. Oh, so do they not have a full, complete skeleton of the Megalodon? They don't. Really? Yeah. What if he just had giant teeth? <laughs> what if he was just swimming around with big old buck teeth? You don't know. Um, and I'll talk more about why that is later, a little bit later. Okay. Why why we only have teeth, mostly. Mm. Uh, where they were found were warm ocean waters across the globe approximately 23 to 3.6 million years ago. Wow. Yes. So, what, so it's been a minute. <laughs> so that's early Miocene to the Pliocene. But they still live closer to us in the timeline than they did non-avian dinosaurs. 
So to put that in scale, you know, these things were a maximum 23 million years ago, whereas non-avian dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago. Okay. So when you say non-avian dinosaurs, you're talking about like what we think of as like Jurassic Park, yes. land before time dinosaurs. Yes. Because when you say all dinosaurs went extinct, you know, someone's- That's not true. Yes. <laughs> I feel that. So yeah, uh, I guess what would be called dinosaurs, what's the word? Meaning language used commonly- Colloquially, yes, the colloquial meaning of dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is that megalodon is closer to us on the timeline. Yes. Okay. Than they are to dinosaurs. <laughs> okay. That's not super comforting, but all right. <laughs> uh, they belong to the taxonomic family Otodontidae. Um, there are other extinct species in that same family and genus, but nothing that really popped off or anything that you would probably recognize. Oh, well. Uh, some other large sharks, basically. I'll put okay. It <laughs> sure. Big sharks. They've always been big. <laughs> now, it was previously put in the same family and genus as today's great white shark. Was that just based on vibes? <laughs> like, you seem right. <laughs> based on the teeth, they thought they were closely related, but not so much. I get, yeah. I mean, if that's all the information you yeah. have to go off of, right? You'd be like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Seems like just a big one of those. So this brings us to our first category of effectiveness. I'm going a full 10 out of 10. Wow. Yeah. So we mentioned they're big. They're not just big, or they weren't just big. They were the largest shark to have ever lived wow. that we know about. That's huge. Um, likely the largest fish in general, too. Mm. Now, that title was previously held by the also extinct bony fish, <laughs> Leedsichthys problematicus. What? <laughs> <laughs> problematicus? Yes. <laughs> sounds like a very frustrated taxonomist that was just so over it. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it was a very large fish, and I'm guessing the problematic component is that they've they found bits and pieces of this fish, but not a full, like, mm. skeleton. No, I think it's actually just that this fish had, like, raunchy opinions. Yeah. Like, this fish, like, went on a podcast and said a bunch of really insensitive stuff and <laughs> said some really gross stuff on TikTok Live. Like Disparaging small mammals. Ugh. <laughs> 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 the most canceled fish. Oof. Now, so yes, that fish held the title of largest fish until 2013 when new estimates placed its maximum length at 16 meters down from 30 meters. Okay. A little downgrade. Yes. Now, the megalodon, like I think all sharks, if not at least most sharks, if not all, it is a cartilaginous fish, meaning their skeletons are mostly made of cartilage instead of bone. So rubbery bits. Yes. Not very hard bits. And here's where that comes into play. Cartilage does not preserve very well. Oh, yes. okay. And my understanding is that teeth are like bone. Correct. Right. So teeth are made of like the hard stuff. Right. Their teeth were made of dentine and enamel. Okay. So that does preserve pretty well as a mm. fossil. But the cartilage is going to break down pretty easily. Probably. Okay. You might find imprints of it in other materials, mm. but that's you know fairly rare. And I guess it was a creature of this size. <laughs> You'd be hard-pressed to find an imprint fossil <laughs> something 60 feet long. Sure. Now, back to its teeth. Lots and lots of pointy teeth. So yeah. Rows and rows of it, just like modern-day sharks. Um, and like I mentioned, made of dentine enamel, so very hard. But, you know, like modern-day sharks, they, they'll go through quite a number of them throughout its lifetime. They had a strong bite force. Uh, so strong enough that their bites have been found in fossils of whales, sea turtles, and other sharks. Wow. So even finding fragments of megalodon teeth in those fossils. 
Oh, that's interesting. I guess that that is one way that you could like sort of reconstruct what their behavior must have mm-hmm. been like, right? From seeing yeah. what they got their teeth stuck in. Right. So it was. So we know it wasn't just their teeth that were big. They themselves were also big to be preying on some of these things. Oh, true. Yeah, you'd have yes. to be pretty huge to be, you know, squaring up to a whale. Right. You have to be super confident. <laughs> And probably not surprising, they were an apex predator, um, meaning it had no natural predators of its own. Um, I guess orcas weren't around yet. There were toothed whales, Mm. but I don't think orcas specifically. Uh, It spent its time relatively close to shore hunting prey. Oh, okay. Yes. That's terrifying. All right. It's fine. <laughs> so that wraps up effectiveness. No, hold on. Because yes. I want to dwell on this, like, spending their time close to shore thing. Yeah. Because I think a lot of times people make assumptions that because of the vastness of the ocean, anything could be out there. Right. Right? So when you get into these, like, I'm sure that later on you're going to talk a little bit about the mm-hmm. discourse about how extinct megalodon is (laughs) you know like i guess knowing that when they were alive they spent a lot of time close to the shore because that's where the things they hunted were right yes so i guess the idea that like oh they might be just hiding somewhere out in the big deep vast ocean that Mm -hmm. doesn't make a lot of sense it doesn't because that's not where their food would be right so we would have noticed by now (laughs) they'd be hanging around our shores and stuff and we spend a lot of time there and i'll definitely come back to that (laughs) okay (laughs) very shortly actually uh, which brings me to our second category, which is historically ingenuity, but mm-hmm. with it being a long extinct animal, yeah. <laughs> there's not much I could get there other than inferred, you know, hunting and such like that. So instead, I don't know how to describe this category. I just put bring it back, question mark. <laughs> it's, this is a pass or fail, yeah. sort of. Uh, should we bring them back? <laughs> uh, fail, I would say. Okay. <laughs> I, I did give it a number. I gave it a three out of ten. A three out of ten for bring back ability? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so first I want to talk about what you mentioned. How do we know it's gone? Yes. So first of all, we haven't found any fossil record younger than three and a half million years old. Oh, so there's a stop. <laughs> there's quite a significant gap. Yeah. That is a very long time to be finding no trace whatsoever of an animal. Yes, exactly. And like you mentioned, we would definitely notice <laughs> if it was still here, especially in today's modern times with how much human spins in the o- spend in the ocean. Yeah. Uh, so like, like we talked about, it hunts near the surface and close to the shore. And its size is massive. And also the lack of other sea life corpses with 10-foot chunks bitten out of them. True, yeah. Because we would also find the things they're eating. (laughs) Right, yeah, because they're not always going to be, you know, eating the entire body, right? They might Uh be – because we we see animals with bite wounds from other predators all the time, right? Right. You'll see things with, like, a chunk taken out of it by, like, a great white or whatever. Or a a corpse that washes up, right? Yeah, like something. something. You'd see some trace. And this thing has a a mouth size that we for sure would be like, oh. Yeah. And this is a little different, but, you know, I think with the giant squid, you know, we knew it existed long before finding a living specimen because we kept finding chunks of it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> They'd be washed up on a beach or inside the stomach of a sperm whale. Oh, so you're talking about, like, an actual corpse of a dead megalodon. Like, we would have found well, a corpse of a dead megalodon. That, too. Probably. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. Because a lot of times stuff that dies out in the ocean, it floats, right? Like you might come across something that's dead and floating. Yeah. Now, internet goers sometimes cite the case of the coelacanth. Yeah. As a potential source of hope for megalodon still existing, unbeknownst to science today. (laughs) So coelacanth, they were thought to have been extinct for 66 million years before live specimens were discovered in 1938. 
As in, like, fishermen's caught live ones. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now, the difference here is that's a two-meter-long fish. Yeah, they're not that. I mean, they're big, but they're not. They also live in deep waters. Mm-hmm. And their whole thing is minimizing energy costs and maximizing metabolic efficiency. So they're slow. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like the Greenland shark. Yeah, yeah, there. yeah. Yeah, so they're basically, like, crawling around the bottom right. of the ocean. So the, And they also passively eat small fish and cephalopods that happen to drift by it. <laughs> so they, <laughs> these aren't apex hunters. <laughs> right. So it makes more sense that the coelacanth went undiscovered like that. Yeah. This yeah. tracks. Yes. That's normal. Uh-huh. Yeah. And like, well, coelacanth is an incredible story. It's very, very cool. We can't extrapolate that to everything right. that we think is extinct. I saw an interesting descriptor for that, by the way. What's that? A Lazarus taxon. Oh. Yes. Oh, that's cool. As like <laughs> a taxon that was like thought to be dead and has been revived. Right. Interesting. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. There's a Pokemon based on coelacanth. Yeah. It's called Relicanth. It's really mm-hmm. cool. It's pretty close. So, next thing I want to talk about is why is it gone? Mm. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because it seems so, like, overpowered. Right. It seems broken. Um, <laughs> oh, you know what? The devs put out a nerf for it. That's what happened. <laughs> it was in a patch. And the community stopped playing it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they all went to Zarya again. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, again. <laughs> but... Not maybe not super interesting, but a big part of it was climate change. Mm. So the ocean temps at the time started to cool, which limited its range, being a fish, right? Um, Cold blooded, etc. And a lack of prey and competition with things like large toothed whales that could be in cooler waters and worked in pods. Oh, here we go. Yeah, so, All right, whales are putting some pressure on megalodon. So they were much better adapted for the cooling temperatures. That makes sense. Yes. Have you thanked a whale today <laughs> for for putting an end to the scourge? <laughs> um, now, why we wouldn't want it back? So first off, it, it wouldn't do too great in today's oceans. <laughs> the things it would likely hunt are not doing especially well themselves today, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, other large sea creatures like whales, right? And, you know, human interactions would likely be disastrous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On both sides, as we prove time and time again with other apex predators. Nobody is having a good time. Yeah. Uh, and while ocean temperatures are on the rise today, they are probably still cooler than what they were in mm. Megalodon's heyday. Sure. And I had read elsewhere, I don't know how true this is, but, you know, things like Megalodon going away are what allowed whales to get as large as they are today. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. But also Megalodon being so huge, you know, probably was was taking up a lot of, uh, y- when you look at like trophic levels, yeah, yeah. you know, like th- there's only so much biomass mm-hmm. an ecosystem can support. So with a predator that large, it's going to be taking up a lot of yeah. the fuel in the lower lo- in the lower trophic levels. And I came across that topic and th- this isn't really related to Megalodon, but if you want an interesting thing to look into and read about is the debate around whether or not humans are considered apex predators mm. in terms of a trophic level. Oh, interesting. Yes. I don't I have to admit I barely understand trophic levels, yeah. but I have heard trophic levels described as a reason we can deduce that Megalodon can't be alive today because we don't like the ocean's ecosystem would right. not be able to support a predator of that size. Sure. Yeah, everything anywhere near that size is, you know, feeding on much smaller things now. Yeah, we cuz cuz we have animals bigger than that right. now. Like blue whales are are far bigger than Megalodon right. ever was. But they're eating tiny tiny yes. tiny things. They're not eating giant prey. Right. 
And this brings us to our last category, aesthetics, unchanged for this episode. Mm. I'm giving an 8 out of 10. Now, see, this is going to be tough for Megalodon, because like <laughs> yeah. you said, we only have teeth to go off of, right. really. So I, I guess you're going to have to go off of giving it our honest best as far as like paleo art and reconstructions go. Yeah, it kind of goes back to that whole, we, the best we can do is just kind of imagine the great white shark just scaled up. Of that, but <laughs> big. Now, here, here, how pretty are the teeth? Are the teeth pretty? I mean... Are they cool looking? They're pretty cool. The, the coloration, you know, is different than what it probably would be. True. From it's a been living sitting. specimen. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I assume that they look super cool. That's my assumption. Yeah, uh, that's fair. <laughs> today's closest sharks uh, have a definite shock and awe quality to them in my mm. eyes. Uh, so I can only imagine that the Megalodon would be that just three times over. Yeah. I think that uh, paleo artists should have more fun with Megalodon. Yeah. They should give it just like bonkers features. <laughs> just absolutely ridiculous stuff. Yeah. I like it when paleo artists just like do a little jazz with it. They just like <laughs> improvise a little bit. They're like, I don't know, maybe. Add throat sacks. Oh, throat sacks. <laughs> Everything needs throat sacks. You could just slap those on there. Because that's the thing. They wouldn't fossilize. You'd have no way of knowing. These have elephant ears. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine a sixty foot shark swimming around with big giant ears? Um, uh, this is where we usually talk about our miscellaneous info, including conservation status, extinct. Oh, great! <laughs> it's funny. I think the Australian Museum website cited IUCN as the. <laughs> But I checked, and the IUCN does not have a, an entry for the Megalodon. Oh, Lord. Last assessed 20 million years ago. <laughs> Population trend stable. Yeah, stably zero. Uh, and a little fun story here. So Megalodon is a popular uh, topic in fiction. Both yes. in movies and other things. It is. Uh, so there was a movie in 2018 called The Meg. Oh, good. I'm so glad you're... Which I believe was based off of a novel, I think. But, so we watched a different movie. <laughs> we did. In the, in the theater, and a trailer for The Meg came on. It did. <laughs> which, this trailer was a lot. It's an intense trailer. Now, I th I must have been like half paying attention or something <laughs> because there was a part where they were doing this whole show some film from the movie and then here's a big word. A giant word yes. on the screen. Yeah, it was so, like spliced together. So you yes. get like a few seconds of footage, giant yeah. word, a few so, seconds, giant word. So what they were doing was like a chomp on this. Oh, God, thing. that's what they were saying? Yes. Oh, my I God. I only saw the first part. So I thought, <laughs> chomp. I thought this movie was called Chomp. <laughs> Which made like, perfect sense to me. Like, that was the title card. <laughs> <laughs> In theaters. Chomp. Chomp. Starring, was it Jason Statham? Is that I, what that actor's name have, is? I have no clue. Hold on, I gotta look it up. Who was affiliated with that film? I haven't seen the movie. I have. Well, you saw the movie? Yeah, remember? No. We, we, I think I watched it on Prime or something. Oh, you must have watched it without me, because I certainly did not. What was it? Did you like it? It was okay. Oh, okay. You heard it here first. A glowing review from Christian Weatherford. <laughs> it was, was Jason okay. Statham. Oh, yeah. You know, action movie guy. Yeah, that makes sense. He would be in that. <laughs> Even in the trailer, he's like, oh, it's a megalodon. <laughs> <laughs> 
They should have made that the title of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah. Oh yeah, because I remember like a few weeks later we were talking about like what movies we wanted to go see, so, and you you said something to me like, "Is that movie Chomp out yet?" And I was like, "What?" <laughs> I was like, "Chomp Monch something." You, yes, you tried so hard to communicate to me. You were like, "It's like Chomp or like Munch or something like that." I was like, "What? No, surely it's not." <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, so the, the whole uh, the whole thing with that movie is like, what Megalodon is still around? It's been hiding in the deep ocean under this thermocline, and mm. now that we sent a submarine down there, we opened up a doorway for it to come out, and mm, then, you know, great. Then it kind of plays out like a Jaws movie after that. My understanding of the discourse is that that movie uh-huh. spurred on a lot of like people watching the movie and taking it very seriously and earnestly, like beginning to become a, a megalodon truther. Yeah, essentially. I, I don't know where in the timeline that this lines up, but also some of that can be attributed to the Discovery Channel and their mm. their recent love of what is it not not mockumentary but uh just really bad documentaries <laughs> fiction like fi- fictional documentaries oh yeah okay okay so back in like what what was that what was the mermaids one that was would have been in what 2013 2012 yeah. 2013 or so yeah on animal planet I cannot believe how badly they betrayed me after growing up as an Animal Planet kid in the golden age of Animal Planet. I can't believe they did this to me. I, I think it was Discovery Channel, wasn't it? The the Mermaids one was Animal Planet. Oh. I think so. I'm going to fact check myself as I say that out loud. Yeah, this isn't some shade you want to throw. <laughs> Mermaids, The Body Found is a mockumentary television program styled as a documentary originally aired on American TV channels Animal Planet and oh, Discovery Channel. Okay, okay. So it was both of them. And it was basically this fake documentary that was acting like these scientists had like developed basically the aquatic ape theory, which right. is this idea that a branch of like early human ancestors branched off and became aquatic, similar to, you know, maybe cetaceans or something like that, giving us mermaids. Uh, but the documentary, this, this fake documentary, which was extremely fake. Yes. And intended, not intended to be perceived as a real documentary, made no indication whatsoever that it was a fake fictional documentary that was not intended to be taken seriously. Right. Until the very end. Like in the closing <laughs> credits. It was yeah. like, by the way, we made all this up. This is not true. Yeah. So without digging too deeply into any one of those, there's been a series of those kind of mockumentaries where the criticism is that the network hasn't done enough, if anything, sometimes mm-hmm. for the for the viewer to know that it is not real. Right. Which I have to say, like, if they made it very clear that they're like, we're doing this for fun, right. like, I would not be so against having fun with the idea right you know like playing around with the concept be like you know using it as sort of like a i I like the idea of using the documentary format for science fiction because that's what it is basically it's science fiction but presented in documentary format instead of narrative format and i like that idea you just have to be honest about what it It, is the context is important yes (laughs) Because if you just if you're just like scrolling through the channels one day and you turn on Animal Planet <laughs> and all you see, you know, is this very serious looking documentary. Yeah. 
you're not going to have any reason. And then if you turn, if you change the channel, right, before they're like, oh, by the way, this was all for jokes, right? Like, <laughs> It's like putting the script to Wild Wild West into a high school U.S. history book. <laughs> this is like the third time we've referenced Wild Wild West on this podcast, and I think we're at our quota. I think we can never mention it ever again. Who are the two people that saw it? <laughs> <laughs> but like separately because we both yeah. saw it as kids for some reason <laughs> yeah. i mean I, I like the idea i just i don't like the way it was executed yeah it's i'm pretty sure even with the mermaid ones there was a scene where the mermaids fought a megalodon so, probably so that's that's something i feel like the existence <laughs> of megalodon or well i guess i don't know i guess it there's, depends on the timeline there's been a few other ones too about you know megalodon existing specifically and you know great whites and uh, mm. it, it ties back into the shark week stuff and oh yeah anyway <laughs> that's the megalodon thank you how delightful i know you like sharks yes so um if you know we wanted to do something special for it being a max fun drive episode and i thought that us having some fun with some extinct critters would be a really fun way to do that yeah speaking of which before we get to my animal, I wanted to take a couple of minutes to talk a little bit about the Max Fun Drive that I mentioned at the top of the episode. Maximum Fun membership pays for shows. So audience members who really like the shows and want to support them, you sign up for a membership. It's a monthly membership. It starts as low as $5 a month. And that money is distributed to the shows that you listen to. So when you sign up for the membership, you tell the network which shows you like, and the network divvies that money up between the shows that you like. Um, so it is a, just a really great way to very easily <laughs> support the shows that you listen to. So throughout the year, we, you know, keep that kind of low key but then during the max fun drive this is the time we really go hard mm -hmm. on you know drumming up a lot of excitement this is you know we we do special stuff and and we put together a lot of really exciting special content to ask for your support so there are multiple different ways you can join you can join upgrade or boost your membership so if you already have a membership you can increase your level of membership uh to a higher level if you're not quite able to make it to the next tier you can do a boost that's just a little bit of the way um you can also gift membership so if you know somebody that you know wants a membership but they maybe can't swing it you can gift it to them and at the five dollar a month level that gets you access to the bonus content and i don't just mean like the bonus content for our show or the bonus content for this year that gives you access to the entire bonus content library which is every show's bonus content for every year mm -hmm. that they've ever been on the network. Yeah. <laughs> so for our show, we have a bonus episode from this year and we have a bonus episode from last year that's on there. So if you sign up now at the $5 a month level, you can get access to both of those, but also the bonus content for every other show on the network. So like let's learn everything, um, Sawbones, you know, the adventure zone, stuff like that. Like every other show on the max fun network, you get, all of their bonus content just at the $5 a month level. Also, our bonus content for this year is a banger. It slaps. <laughs> it's so, so good. Our bonus content this year is us workshopping ideas for Fakemon. 
So Christian and I each came up with ideas for Pokemon that don't exist, but we think they should. And we had a lot of fun just like talking them out, brainstorming, coming up with some fun ideas. It was really, really fun. I had a great time recording that. And it was just, it was a, a very exciting thing. It's one of those things where like we, we came up with the designs on our own so that you can listen to it without being familiar with Pokemon. <laughs> you know, like you can, you can listen to it without having played the games or anything and still enjoy it mm -hmm. so uh, i'm i'm really excited about that i think everyone's gonna really enjoy it um so in addition to the five dollar a month bonus content if you join or upgrade to the ten dollar a month level of max one membership then you get to choose a sticker and there are stickers with designs for each show on the network and our sticker I almost screamed when I saw it because it is the most incredible thing I've ever seen. Uh, it is... <laughs> it is Charles Darwin. Oh. <laughs> chucking an iguana, but he's like, he's he's up mid-air with the iguana behind his back, like, a, like an NBA poster. It's like... <laughs> It's like NBA style Charles Darwin. He's like up in the air flying. <laughs> Darwin from center court. <laughs> Chucky D. <laughs> Just yeeting this iguana. It's inc and and the art is beautiful. It's really really good. Um, so that is the ten dollar a month level. Also at higher levels like the thirty five dollar and up level, you get a really beautiful apron that says Maximum Yum with a really beautiful design on it we've mm -hmm. we've got one already uh it is incredible you've you've used it while cooking already yeah it's very high quality yeah um, sturdy it has at least four pockets going off memory you love it's it like like the pockets utility apron yeah and it's just cute also you it can't is. you can't grill if did, did we say it's cute. blue it is blue. It is blue. We'll put. I'll put up a picture of you wearing it and being very cute on oh, our social media. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's it's really fun. There's other gifts also. If you want to learn more about what the gifts are at the other tiers, um, and if you want to sign up to support us and get in on these really cool gifts, uh, you can do that over at maximumfun.org/join. Oh, I also wanted to say what our goals are. <laughs> You know, every year we come up with our own little membership goals for, you know, if we hit certain numbers of new people that are either joining for the first time or upgrading their membership, um, we have our own fun little rewards. And our first one is at the 100 mark. Uh, if we get 100 new or upgrading members, I will draw a set of animal emojis that will be available to download for free on our website. So little emojis that you can upload to your Discord server and use for that. Or I guess if you wanted to do something like print them out and use them as stickers, you could do that too. Mm. Uh, you know, so I will just basically make 10 cute little animal designs that you could use for whatever you'd like and post them for free on our website mm -hmm. um and then our our next goal after that is going to be at 300 if we get 300 new upgrading we will do a live nature documentary watch party so on our discord server we'll hop in the voice channel and stream a nature documentary off of youtube and provide our sort of live reactions and commentary <laughs> on it uh, and hang out with folks in the chat and everything like that. So that was, that will be a fun thing. Oh yeah. That'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if all that sounds great, then head over to maximumfund.org slash join and sign up to support us in our goals and, and keep our show going. Appreciate you 
for doing that. Yeah. Totes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Back in present day. Where are you taking us, Ellen? I am taking you much more recently in the past. Okay. So just just a hop, skip, and a jump away <laughs> from the present. Uh, but geographically, I'm taking you quite far from where we are presently located. Okay. I'm taking you to Tasmania. Ooh. This is the thylacine. All right. Also known as the Tasmanian tiger. Scientific name is Thylacinus cynocephalus. The species was requested by Tiffany Gillette. Thank you, Tiffany. I'm getting my information from Australian Geographic, the Australian Museum, and the National Museum of Australia, which is a different thing. The National Museum of Australia is a government agency. Oh. The Australian Museum is different. The Australian Museum is in Sydney, and the National Museum of Australia is in Canberra. Oh. Yeah. I'm not familiar enough with the geography of Australia to know how far apart that is. Well, Canberra is the actual capital of Australia. Oh. Yeah. So, if you're not familiar with a thylacine, let me introduce you. They were up to about 130 centimeters long, which is about four feet, mm-hmm. with a tail of up to 65 centimeters long, or two feet. Oh. But they were only about 60 centimeters tall, which is about two feet. So, they were long. But short. Long. Yeah, short, sort of like stout little little dudes. Very long corgi. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite to corgi proportions, no. But it's funny because they looked a lot like a dog. Right. A very dog-like shape, but their tail was more sort of rigid and thick, more like a kangaroo's tail. Um, and they had dark stripes just sort of over their butt. Mm-hmm. So like right over the hind portion of their back, these really dark tiger-like stripes. So not stripes all over, but just stripes on the back. Okay. Which is interesting. Mm. Now, originally, the thylacine was found in Australia, Papua New Guinea, and Tasmania. So originally, they were on the mainland. They started out there. But then, around 5,000 years ago, thylacines went extinct in Australia and Papua New Guinea, leaving only the Tasmanian population behind. Oh. Yeah, so they were more widespread. And I'll, I'll give a little bit more about why that f- sort of first wave of extinction happened for the thylacine. Something we've actually already talked about on a previous episode, but I'll get into it. Now, for those unfamiliar, Tasmania is an island to the south of eastern Australia. Hmm. So like, think about the eastern side of Australia. It's directly south of there. And the last evidence of their presence in Tasmania was at the Beaumarie Zoo in Hobart, Australia, when the last known thylacine died on September 7th, 1936. Oh. It's pretty recent. Yeah. Like, there's people alive today that still remember, like, that time. Hmm. They probably didn't, like, know thylacine, but, you know, like, there's people alive that still remember the 1930s, so that's within living memory. As children, yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> within living memory. Yeah. Now, for their taxonomic family, thylacine were the last remaining member of their family, thylacinidae, uh, which they belonged to the order Daziuromorpha, which are carnivorous marsupials. Oh. So they were marsupials. Their most well-known living cousins are the quolls and the Tasmanian devil. 
Ah, okay. So there are a bunch of others, but those are the two that I think you'd be the most likely to mm-hmm. have heard of before. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when you think Tasmanian Devil, right? That's a that's a very sort of well known uh, carnivorous marsupial. Yes. So it is interesting that they bear such a striking resemblance to dogs or canines in general because they're marsupials. So hmm. marsupials split off from the rest of like split off from placental mammals right after monotremes basically. So they're so distantly related to any like placental mammal that like dogs or canines like that that they look like are more closely related to you and me mm. as humans. <laughs> like they're more closely related to us, which is weird that they look so similar. You mentioned monotremes. Mm-hmm. What are those again? Monotremes are egg-laying mammals, such as platypus and echidnas, are oh, really okay. the only living ones. That's what monotremes are. Ah. They shouted us out on Sawbones recently when we were talking about monotremes, which is very exciting. Yes. Love those. Yeah, that's great. We love them. So it is just weird that they look so much like dogs when they're not. Not only are they not dogs, but they're so far from dogs, right? That it's just an example of, like, very striking convergent evolution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, just a little note on etymology here, on the name of the thylacine. So thylacine comes from Greek. I think it means like pouch. That's not the part I want to talk about. <laughs> Boring. No one cares. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the part of the, that's not what I want to talk about when I talk about their name. Okay. So I'm going to uh, quote a 2020 article by Teresa Tan for the Australian Broadcasting Company. And this article was about the new DC comic book superhero who is an indigenous Australian woman whose superhero name is thylacine oh yes so this is a quote from that article yes in palawakani the reconstructed language of tasmania's aboriginal peoples the word for thylacine is kaparunina says palawa woman trish hodge co-founder of tasmanian aboriginal education group nita education but in the old language it is corinna Hmm. Corinna is also the superhero's civilian name. Oh, that's nice. Isn't that cool? That's such a like a neat little detail. Yes. Like her her like regular you know, not superhero name is Corinna, uh-huh. which was the indigenous word for the thylacine. Nice. What are her superpowers? Did you happen to find i mean i didn't write it down one of them was like supervision i think she has like enhanced physical ability she's part of the new suicide squad oh um she i don't think she's in the movies but she's i guess in the new suicide squad comics okay yeah which i don't keep up with i'm sorry i don't yeah (laughs) we're not super we're not comic book people i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i just thought that was an interesting note about uh thylacine the superhero apparently they did a lot of consulting with indigenous groups in australia well Character. Yeah. Uh, so to get into my ratings for thylacine, uh, first up is effectiveness. And I have to say, I'm going to give them like a seven, okay. out of ten, m- maybe a six even. First of all, there's a really weird thing about them that I fully, I honestly could not find anything about why they can do this, but they could open their mouth to a much wider angle than most other mammals can. So they could open their mouth up to 80 degrees. 
which I actually thought I was like, that doesn't seem that much. That doesn't seem like that much until I tried to open my mouth to yeah. 80 degrees. And I was like, oh, wait, yeah, no, I can't. It's like gulper, gulper eel proportion. It's, almost. It was like an extremely <laughs> wide angle. Yeah. And the thing is, they have these really like long, narrow jaws. They right. almost look like crocodile jaws when they're open. Um, so it makes a very, uh, you know, bizarre sort of effect. But also their tail vertebrae were mostly fused together, which made their tail very rigid. Mm. They're said to have been able to hop on their hind legs like a kangaroo. So they could get up on their hind legs and do a bipedal sort of hop. I don't think this was the sort of thing that they were like, you know, like kangaroos, I think, spend a lot of their time up on their hind legs. So I don't think this was to to that degree. They still spent the vast majority of their time on all fours. But I think kind of like how a bear might be able to get yeah. up on their hind legs when the situation absolutely demands it. I think it was kind of like that. I don't like the image my brain is making of it's this. It's a little creepy, right? Like, like it's a little spooky. <laughs> I'm imagining, you know, the thylacine on its hind legs with its long, narrow jaws open to nearly 90 degrees. It, yeah, <laughs> it's a little bit you. SCP sort of. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and you know what? Can I add another log to that fire? What? They were nocturnal. <sighs> <laughs> There's going to be a survival game based on this in the next oh, year. Oh, that'd bet. be so cool. <laughs> yeah, very spooky. Spooky little dudes. Okay, I'm going to bring it back in Thanks. then. I'm going I'm to shift the tone a little bit to something else about them that is uh, a, a little bit less uh, nightmare. Palette, yeah, not a, not a nightmare fuel <laughs> thing. Um, like other marsupials, they did have a pouch. That is sort of the defining characteristic of marsupials. They had a pouch. Uh-huh. But there are a couple of things that made their pouch... Special. Oh, boy. First of all, the pouch opened backwards. Okay. That, towards their butt. We've seen that before. We have seen that. Well, so in koalas, mm-hmm. um, their pouch opened sort of towards, like, the front. Yeah. Or, not the front, but, like, uh, outward, almost, I suppose. In such a way where, like, at certain angles, because of gravity, the pouch would be sort of pointing downward. That's not much of a pouch, is it? <laughs> 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 it's more than women's jeans get. <laughs> but thylacine, it fully, like, the opening was, like, next to their tail and, yeah. and butthole. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it makes sense. Um, but there's another weird thing about their pouch, uh, which is that both male and female thylacines had pouches. Oh. Yeah. In females, it was for the obvious reason of carrying their young around. Yeah. And in males, it served as a protective sheath. For their reproductive anatomy. Interesting. Yeah. They would just tuck it in there huh. for safekeeping. <laughs> this feels like there's some other stuff here that you maybe can't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, nothing that people know about or that I could That's find, true. at least in the research, you know? Like, maybe they were doing something weird with it. All I don't right. know. Like, we just don't know. <laughs> I would tell you if I could. <laughs> Uh, that's a, a great mystery lost to time. Now we'll never know. We could have known. <laughs> it's just weird that they had, yes. that they both male and female had pouches. Yes. Because obviously in modern day marsupials, I, I say it like it's not a modern day marsupial, but other marsupials, they're obviously able to not develop those right. early in their it's development. It's unique. Yeah. It's a very unique trait. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's really weird. So, the timeline of the thylacine's first wave of extinction, so that 5,000 years ago, mm-hmm. where they went extinct from everywhere except for Tasmania, that lines up with the introduction of dingoes to Australia. 
Hmm. Well, not necessarily with dingoes. Humans came into Australia with dogs that were with them that over time became dingoes. Hey, it's me editing the episode. I wanted to make a note in here to clarify the timeline. Humans are believed to have first arrived in Australia somewhere around 48,000 to 50,000 years ago. At the time, Tasmania was connected to Australia via a land bridge, which people crossed to settle on the island before the sea level rose and it became separated. However, the dogs that would later become dingoes are not thought to have arrived until much later, between five and 10,000 years ago, from Borneo and Sulawesi. By that time, the land bridge had disappeared, so dingoes didn't populate Tasmania. Okay, back to the episode. So uh, there were some hypotheses as to why this happened. First of all, one of the most common ones is that dingoes are thought to have outcompeted the thylacine. Mm -hmm. So marsupials tend to have much slower metabolisms than placental mammals, and therefore they need less food. So thylacine wouldn't have needed to eat as much and then when dingoes came into play they lived in much greater density so they live in packs right so you'd have a lot of dingoes that lived in a small area and then the dingoes also needed more food per dingo because they have a faster metabolism so they would have consumed way more prey than the Mm -hmm. ecosystem was used to and then that wouldn't have left enough prey left over for thylacine to survive off of. Mm-hmm. So that's one idea about how that could have played out. Another thought about that is that even though the thylacine could exert stronger bite force, uh, research by the University of New South Wales showed that thylacine skulls actually weren't very good at bearing mechanical stress. So whereas dingoes were probably not as powerful as thylacine, they were probably more effective at killing larger prey. Mm. Because first of all, they hunt in packs, so they have numbers, and thylacine didn't. Um, But also that they had more resilient skulls, and they could probably fight larger prey. Mm. Which is why it's kind of weird that they could open their mouth so wide. Because why would you need to open your mouth that wide if you're not eating large prey? Right? I can't think of any reason... I, I, for the life of me, I tried, I tried looking around to be like, <laughs> why? Why is this a thing? Because you can see it when they yawn. There's, there's videos of them yawning. Right. And it's bizarre how wide their mouth opens when they do it. But I, for the life of me, I couldn't figure out why. Hmm. Um, just one of those mysteries left dangling by extinction. Um, dingoes are also in general larger than thylacine ever was. So combined with the fact that dingoes typically live and hunt in packs, if the dingoes and thylacine were ever in direct like conflict with each other, the dingoes would have won. If they ever fought, the dingoes for sure would have killed thylacine. Yeah. Um, that's not to th- that's not thought to be like a huge factor in their extinction. It's just, you know, but if you were to put them together in a fight, the dingo would probably win. And all that information, by the way, was from a, a paper titled, Could Direct Killing by Larger Dingoes Have Caused the Extinction of the Thylacine from Mainland Australia? And that was by Mike Letnick et al. in the Public Library of Science in May of 2012. Hmm. Well, the dingoes, at least, did not make it into Tasmania, so that's thought to be why the thylacine went extinct from the areas where the dingoes were, but still did fine where there were no dingoes. Mm. So, what used to be the ingenuity category? Um, I did, you know, even though we're not doing ingenuity ratings because we don't have a lot of information about them, I did want to include some notes on thylacine behavior. Okay. Because this... They did overlap with humans. Like, they did live alongside humans for thousands of years. So we do have information about their behavior. 
Unfortunately, due to the fact that they were mostly nocturnal and they were also really shy, we don't have a ton. Mm -hmm. But we have something. Uh, Paleontologists have actually examined the anatomy of their joints to determine their hunting behavior. Mm. So researchers determined that the shape of their elbow joints allowed them to twist their arms around. So, for example, they could turn their paws upward facing. Okay. Uh. This is similar to the joints of cats. So they had similar range of paw movement than mm. cats do. So the thinking about this is that this kind of range of movement is similar to what we see in ambush predators like cats, suggesting that that would have been how the thylacine hunted. So rather than being a pursuit predator like a canine, they were probably an ambush predator that just waited until prey was close enough that they could then ambush it. Hmm. Um, and that's from a paper titled The Predatory Behavior of the Thylacine Tasmanian Tiger or Marsupial Wolf. Oh. Yeah. And that was by Borgia Figuerito and Christine M. Janis in Biology Letters in May of 2011. And then one more note on their behavior. There is an account by indigenous storytellers that I would like to read from an article in The Clearing titled Words of Life by Nicholas Evans. This was published on November 28th, 2018. And Nicholas writes, But through those millennia of the thylacine's absence from the mainland, indigenous groups from western Arnhem Land, such as those who speak Benin Kunwak, have kept alive both a name for it, Janger, and a detailed memory of its appearance and behavior, thanks to the combination of storytelling traditions and extraordinary rock paintings at mm. places like Korlanjor, Def Adder Gorge, and Kunjorlanjorlam on the upper reaches of the Liverpool River in Arnhem Land. This knowledge transmitted down through the generations has given Jonker a ghostly afterlife. A recent children's book in the Kunwinku dialect of Benin Kunwak tells of two thylacines hunting and bringing down a kangaroo by biting at its tail. At the end of the story, both the thylacines and the kangaroo fall off a cliff into a creek and are transformed into fish. The fact that the thylacine is transformed into an archerfish references the visual link that archerfish, like thylacines, have stripes on their tails. I see. And archerfish is in shoots water to... Yes. Okay. Yeah, the little fish that shoot jets of water out okay. of their mouth to shoot prey down onto the water. So that's an interesting story of thylacines hunting kangaroos by pulling their tails. Because... Like I mentioned earlier, like they wouldn't have been able to really like struggle with a kangaroo because kangaroos are really powerful and right. could easily have just, you know, kicked them to shreds. Um, but if they were doing something like teaming up to use their tail to throw them off balance, that could have been a way that they yeah. hunted kangaroos. Yeah, that makes sense. But as far as <laughs> bring back ability goes, <laughs> you know, I'm kind of on the fence about it. I'm going to give them like a six out of ten. For bring back ability. Okay. I, I really can't develop strong feelings either way because I can see either side very clearly. I'll talk about it in a few minutes. First, I want to talk about aesthetics for the thylacine. Oh. I'm giving them a 9 out of 10. This is a gorgeous creature. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful. They're so pretty. There is footage of the last living thylacine. It was recorded by biologist David Flea at the Hobart Zoo in 1933. And to quote Australian Geographic... The cameraman who took the famous footage of the last captive Tasmanian tiger was 
bitten on the buttocks while filming. Huh. Yeah. I guess while he was filming, the thylacine <laughs> did not like where he was standing and nipped him on the butt. Lynch. Just I, I, I. <laughs> is the is the video in black and white? It was originally in black and white, but in recent years it's been colorized. So oh, okay. you can actually go on YouTube and look up. It's the original footage, but it's been basically restored. So it's been colorized, but they also I don't know what the process is to like remaster footage or something. But it sure. looks very good. That's like cool. it looks very clear. It kind of makes me sad to see though. You know, it's very strange. It, it gives me a very bizarre feeling to yeah, watch. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it looks so real. You know, like it, it looks so like modern and, and it feel it just gives you a sense of like loss and it gives me very strong feelings to watch yeah. this footage. Um, but they are hauntingly beautiful, uh, not only because of the knowledge that they're now gone, but also because of their just really strikingly unique facial features. It reads dog at first when you see it. It looks like it gives you the feeling of like, this is a dog, but like not quite right. this is a dog that has something weird about it like they have these really sort of wide skull with their eyes that are like really far apart like way farther apart than you'd expect a dog's to be Mm -hmm. and then their jaws are really really long but also really really narrow from the front so like i said like a crocodile like it looks like a crocodile sort of face they also have this sort of like very rigid tail that isn't quite what you expect from a dog body you know because it, it is the sort of the, that back half of their body does kind of look very kangaroo like mm-hmm. so it just gives you a strange feeling to see them that they look so halfway between like a dog and a kangaroo i, I don't recall was was there no naturally occurring canines in australia prior to the introduction correct of- there had been no canines and i think no felines either okay so large carnivores were not really a thing in Australia until, mm. d- until you know, dogs were introduced. Hmm. So after disappearing from everywhere else, thylacines held strong in Tasmania for thousands more years until Europeans arrived in the early 1800s. Mm. And that's never a good sign. <laughs> Nothing yeah. good ever happens after that. Um, so Europeans arrive in Tasmania. At that point, there's believed to be about 5,000 thylacine, which doesn't sound like that many, but it's not a huge island, right? right. It's That's a reasonable number. So the Europeans who colonized Tasmania brought with them sheep and cattle. The livestock often didn't take too well to the landscape. Tasmania has some extreme weather at certain times. So, the you know, I, I watched this documentary where at one point somebody described it as you can get all four seasons in one day. You can get one day ranging from like very severe heat to extreme cold in the same day. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard people say the same about Florida, but this sounds like more legitimate. Like, no, this is more. I mean, in Florida, it really never gets that cold, but it gets really cold in Tasmania. Right. So you can get like a wide range of temperatures and weather conditions. So it's kind of harsh, you know, like it's it's some you get some kind of extreme weather uh, in Tasmania. So uh, the Europeans, uh, they weren't accustomed to the land and they really struggled to manage it properly. It's very different from the land they're really used to. And so they lost a lot of livestock that way. Mm. Like things were dying and, and things weren't going well. However, they blamed their losses not on a skill issue <laughs> rather than accepting user error 
they blamed the thylacine, Man. saying that thylacine was like killing their livestock because they see the thylacine, they think this must be analogous to the wolves and foxes that we're accustomed to that you know, have historically come into conflict with our livestock. Common colonizer ill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they started to hunt thylacine proactively. The farmers in this area started to hunt them proactively to the extent that the government introduced bounties for thylacine. So they would pay for the skins as proof that you had killed the animal. And this went on for nearly 100 years. By the end of the bounty system in 1909, more than 2,000 thylacine bounties had been paid. Uh, the total number of thylacine killed by humans is believed to be at least 3,500 in wow. a less than 100-year period. Uh, which, keeping in mind that they started with 5,000, right. right? And yeah. so that is a devastating mm -hmm. population loss in a very short amount of time. Public opinion on the thylacine began to swing in the other direction in the 1930s. Uh-oh. Yeah. So that's when people suddenly decided that they wanted to be play nice with thylacine. The species was granted federal protection as an endangered species in 1936. The last known thylacine died 59 days later. Oh, no. Yeah, it was kind of too little too late at that point. Yeah. They added the last remaining one to this endangered <laughs> species list. <laughs> the literal absolute minimum. <laughs> yeah, the absolute bare minimum. So, like, by that point, what are you going to do? Like, there's there's none of them left to protect. Uh, and they were never uh, seen again. I bet that was more of a PR stunt than anything. Uh, yeah, like trying to pretend like you suddenly care about yeah. them. So they were never seen again. There is a lot of anecdotal evidence. People have said they've th seen thylacine. Since then, on and off over the years, people have claimed to have camera trap footage and photographs of thylacine that have never been deemed conclusive. They've never been verified. This happens every couple of years. Somebody will say they've got a thylacine photo, and then it never is. How much of those are coming from Tasmania? <laughs> well, yeah, it, a lot of times it is people that either live there or go there to try to okay. find them. I, I guess I assume maybe some of this was coming from mainland Aust Australia, which would be even that would be an even bigger stretch because they haven't lived there in like over five thousand years. Okay. It wouldn't be completely out of the question to think that a couple of them have been hiding for the last hundred years. Hey, it's me with an edit. Just before this episode was posted, but after we had already recorded and edited it, a paper was published in the journal Science of the Total Environment titled Resolving When and Where the Thylacine Went Extinct, where researchers actually put together a database of reported thylacine sightings from Tasmania, assigned them an uncertainty value, and analyzed the patterns they showed, along with visualizations of their movement, to model the decline of the thylacine's population. To quote the paper, a direct reading of the high quality records, confirmed kills and captures in combination with sightings by past thylacine hunters and trappers, wildlife professionals, and experienced bushmen, implies a most likely extinction date within four decades following the last capture, i.e. 1940s to 1970s. However, uncertainty modeling of the entire sighting record, where each observation is assigned a probability and the whole data set is then subject to a sensitivity analysis, suggests 
suggests that extinction might have been as recent as the late 1980s to early 2000s, with a small chance of persistence in the remote southwestern wilderness areas. So what this basically means is that while the last scientifically confirmed thylacine died in 1936, there were probably still some left in the wild until sometime between the 1940s and 1970s, with a small but not impossible chance that they could have been hiding in southwestern Tasmania even until the 1980s or early 2000s. It's a really interesting update to their extinction timeline, and I recommend that anybody interested take a look at the paper. I will link it in the episode description. I'd also like to thank Ivan Kwan for bringing the paper to my attention after this episode was initially posted. Thanks. Back to the episode. Uh, but yeah, people on and off over the la- you know, every couple of years or so, you'll get somebody who uh, will post a YouTube video with a very provocative thumbnail that's usually like, did I find a thylacine? <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> they never do. So due to how recently the species went extinct and how many specimens we still have in relatively good condition, like with animals that went extinct like hundreds and hundreds of years ago, mm-hmm. the specimens break down and degrade over time. And then you just you lose a lot of integrity of the specimens. But we have some some thylacine specimens in really good shape still. Yeah. We have wet specimens, like a full, complete they're they're mostly like either fetuses or like like babies it's not an adult but we have complete thylacine specimens preserved in jars yeah yeah so due to the fact that we have data like that uh the thylacine has been strongly suggested and debated as a candidate for de-extinction so the idea is that they would use science to bring the species back from the dead this is a controversial process but i also think it's very frequently misunderstood. I think when people hear de-extinction, they think like Jurassic Park, you know, growing... Life life, uh, finds a way. Yeah, life (laughs) finds a way sort of thing, which, you know, admittedly, it's been a really long time since I saw a Jurassic Park movie. But, you know, the idea behind that is like you use the DNA to basically make a new one of that animal. Like it'd be exactly the same as it was when it lived on the earth, right? Well, in Jurassic Park, (laughs) <laughs> no you you've probably seen it you probably at least remember it better than i do in jurassic park the whole thing was they weren't exact clones of dinosaurs as they existed they mm-hmm. were some parts of dinosaur dna spliced with frog dna okay so the idea is the end result is something similar but not exact so this is actually kind of similar to that but basically the idea is that like you use what you know about the extinct animals dna Mm -hmm. and then tweak existing dna to be more like that so that over time eventually you arrive at something that is very very similar to what we once had Hmm. so it, it wouldn't be like you know respawning an entire thylacine as they existed you know 100 years ago but Either way, there are some major pros and major cons to the entire de-extinction process. I think some of the biggest pros are, first of all, getting the species back, having them again, you know, like huge cultural significance there, you know, like people of Tasmania really resonate with this animal. It's like Mm -hmm. of, of a lot of cultural significance to the people who live there. And I think there's also some suggestion that you could reintroduce them to restore some of the like original balance to the ecosystem the idea is that like if you can reintroduce them then it can kind of like regulate the ecosystem as it was when they were alive 
But some of the biggest cons are that the ecosystem has likely changed a lot since the species existed. And they likely wouldn't just easily slot right back into it. So with the thylacine, this is an animal who we don't know what would have happened to it if humans hadn't proactively hunted it. You know, like if we hadn't gone out of our way to intentionally destroy the species, maybe they could have competed with dogs. Like, maybe they could have evolved and adapted over time and outcompeted with introduced species. They might have been fine. We don't know, mm-hmm. right? They they could have. We, we didn't give them a shot, basically. They didn't have a chance because humans went out of their way to intentionally kill them off. But I think what we've seen a couple times now is that humans with the will and means can overcome a species having a problem with introduced species. Mm-hmm. So if it did have a problem with dogs and it wasn't being actively hunted, that that was within human means to, yeah. to assist. Yeah, and we didn't. We weren't really interested in doing that at that time. So the idea is that if you were to bring thylacine back, they would face the exact same problems that they did the first time around, mm-hmm. which are by now Tasmania has had lots of new species introduced to it that choked them out on the mainland, right? So it's like... They're just going to go extinct all over again, and then you're going to make the entire de-extinction process a huge waste of time and money and resources that could have been dedicated to protecting the ecosystem as it is now. Sure. Like, you could just invest all of those resources and all that time and money and energy and effort into conserving what we have to make sure we don't lose anything else. Mm -hmm. There's also some, like, conceptual challenges to the idea that, like, we need to grapple with the permanency of extinction and process it. You know, like the idea is that if we lose a species, it's Mm. gone forever and we can't feel like we can just bring them back. Right. So we're kind of in the bargaining phase of grief over the extinction of the thylacine. Yes. It's (laughs) kind of like if if we feel like we just have the de-extinction process to fall back on, that could actually discourage conservation efforts. Right. Right. So if, if you were to say, you know, we need to conserve this land because we need to protect this endangered species, you don't want to rebuttal to that to be, well, why should we protect the species when we could just bring it back with science anyway? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if we were to say, you know, okay, we need to protect this. Let's say there's a preserve in Florida that is a known habitat for Florida panthers. Mm-hmm. And we say like, we need to protect and preserve this area because it's to protect the Florida panther that lives there. If the rebuttal to that is, well, why should we protect this land when we could just de-extinct the Florida panther anyway? And then that feels like they have a free pass to do whatever they want with the land. Because then it's like, well, who cares if you go extinct? Because then we can bring you back. Yeah. It's something that would just get in the way of conservation, basically. I mean, it's, it's an argument that would quickly fall apart among people of science, but would probably not be like that with the people making those decisions. Exactly. Yes. That's the problem. You have to think about like, you know, how is this, what what are going to be the long-term like repercussions of us having access to this technology? Right. So yeah, big, sort of big thoughts about that. Like there's actually a really, really good, really recent episode of Let's Learn Everything, which is another Maximum Fun podcast on de-extinction, especially as it pertains to the dodo. So they focused on the dodo in their episode, but they also go a lot more into like the science behind the resurrection process. Well, let me ask the question. Have we successfully de-extincted something? I only know of, just off the top of my head, I didn't make a note of this. I only know off the top of my head of a species of tortoise. You know what? Let me look this up before I talk on this. 
There is um, an ongoing attempt at de-extinction of a tortoise species called the Floriana giant tortoise, which is an extinct subspecies of the Galapagos tortoise Mm, that are found on a specific island in the Galapagos archipelago. And um, the idea is that this this tortoise went did go extinct in the 1800s, but at some point hybrids of this species, like between this species and a different one, mm-hmm. were discovered elsewhere in the Galapagos Islands. So there is an ongoing breeding program that is attempting to use those hybrids to basically work backwards and like back into the original Floriana tortoise. Okay. I can't speak to its success. Like, I don't know if it's working, but I know that it is something that is actively being attempted sure and that's not the sort of thing that's being done like in a lab with well i'm sure it's being done like in a lab and stuff but that that's not really like gene splicing and stuff right. that's like they're just breeding tortoises together right. to try to get back to the original yeah traits. and that's a very specific case mm-hmm. it's kind of like a low-tech version <laughs> of, what, of jurassic park <laughs> right. whereas with jurassic park you'd have to work you'd have to go through many generations to work backwards to mm-hmm. t-rex <laughs> And that's probably something you wouldn't probably see very often outside of the Galapagos. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, as far as should they be brought back, I'm still at like a like a six to maybe four out of ten, <laughs> you know, because part of me is like, we really did not give them a chance at all. Like, if it weren't for human aggression towards them, maybe they could have they could have survived. Yeah. They could have made it. We'll never know, you know? Yeah. I just, I also feel like that all of those resources could be allocated better to just protecting what we have. Yeah. Because bringing it back, the best you could hope for is that it would face the exact same adverse, adversities it did previously. Right. Like, would we would we be dooming it to an entire existence yeah. that is dependent on, like, human care? Like, and that's that's the best case, because the more likely case is that it's going ha- to have to face that same thing. Plus, mm-hmm. now the hole it left in the ecosystem has been filled by something else. Yes, actually, that is very true, because now introduced species like mm-hmm. dogs and cats and stuff mm-hmm. have filled the niche that thylacine once did so now it's going to have to compete with them you know and basically edge its way back in if it were to be reintroduced yeah so you know the only way i could think of that really realistically panning out is that you know we bring them back only to need to keep them in captivity forever which you know at that point that's ethically dubious (laughs) because captivity should work towards you know conservation and stuff so Thylacine is a really interesting uh, animal to explore those concepts with because it went extinct so recently mm-hmm. and as a direct result of, like, human behavior. So we're kind of having to, like, sit in our room and think about what we've yeah. done at this point. Yeah, and it's it's far from being the only species that have gone extinct in recent history, but it's probably up there as one of the more charismatic ones. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, because it's beautiful. Yeah. And people like them interesting uh, concepts to explore with this animal mm-hmm. uh that's the thylacine i'm glad i got to talk about it finally yeah <laughs> you have to go explore those elsewhere now sorry <laughs> <laughs> no, don't worry they'll keep me up for the rest of the night i'll be fine <laughs> i'm glad to do an episode that's a little different from what we usually mm-hmm. do it's kind of a trip through time and history and it's a it's a fun thing that we get to do and you know we get to do exciting stuff and we get to like break from our format and everything like that because you know we have the freedom to make the show the way that we want to make it 
and that's because you know we we still own the show like we're on we're on this on the maximum fun network but you and i completely own and control the content of the show it's really really nice to be able to be a part of a network that like lends its resources and and its staff and things like that to us without us having to sacrifice our like freedom to make the show that we want to make uh which we can do all of that because of support for the maximum fun network so um if this show has in any way meant something to you <laughs> during your time <laughs> listening to it you know if it if it has helped you in any way or if it's in- enriched your life in some way uh and if you have the funds available like if you've got a couple extra bucks laying around and you want to use it to uh you know support this podcast which is essentially a big free science communication project if that is something that is important to you and means a lot to you then uh we we just ask that you consider heading over to maximumfund.org/join and signing up to keep our show thriving and surviving yeah so we won't go extinct <laughs> <laughs> that's a joke yeah. i'm sorry that's not I shouldn't pretend there's a risk of that. No. <laughs> We'd like to thank Louise Ong for our theme music that absolutely bops and slaps and is fire and other slang words that <laughs> I definitely know and understand the meanings of. It gets lots of praise among the community. It does. I hear from a lot of people that you dance along to it or make the little animal sounds mm-hmm. or have a lot of fun with the song, which is like exactly what I wanted from the song. So I was, <laughs> I'm very thankful every day to Louis Zong for making the song for us. And that's it. We'll be back next week. Next week, we're hearing from y'all. We're opening our mailbag and reading your stories and questions and comments and all sorts of stuff. So mm-hmm. there's looking forward to that. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye, y'all. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.